This is an audio presentation for the series War Crimes Trials of the Second World War. SS Sturmbannführer, or Major Joachim Piper, was the commander of a Kampfgruppe, a battle group of tanks. He came to prominence at the Battle of Malmedy, during which 84 American prisoners were shot, apparently in cold blood. He was accused, amongst other things, of having ordered their murder and was sentenced to death. But was he guilty as charged? Piper, together with 73 other SS officers and soldiers, was indicted before an American military government court, the trial taking place at Dachau between the 16th of May and the 16th of July 1946. There were so many defendants that the judges had no possibility of remembering their faces, and so each defendant was given a number which he was required to wear on a large placard placed around his neck. Let's set the scene. The judges were eight American officers. The president was 48-year-old Brigadier General Josiah T. Dolby, and his law officer was Colonel Abraham H. Rosenfeld, a man who held a law degree from Yale Law School and who had been a field commander during the war. Rosenfeld was the dominant figure on the bench and, in the view of the defence, was heavily prejudiced against the defendants. The defence team consisted of five officers. They were all lawyers, but not necessarily with experience in criminal law. Their leader, Lieutenant Colonel Willis M. Everett, had practised in civilian life in a firm specialising in investments, corporations and civil law, and his lack of experience of criminal trials was to be a disadvantage. Only one of the defence team, a second lieutenant, was a member of the Judge Advocate General's Corps, the body of professional lawyers within the United States Army. His presence will unfortunately have provided little comfort to the defendants, given that his relatively junior rank suggests a lack of knowledge, experience, ability, or a combination of all three. This was a military court-martial, and it was unlike both a civilian court and other courts-martial. With the noble aim of ensuring that justice was delivered, rules which would have prevailed in civilian courts were waived or modified. Quite why military officers could not be trusted to try a defendant fairly if the rules generally accepted in civilian courts were used is not clear. The court took what is called judicial notice of the crimes, and these were therefore considered a proven fact. In a throwback to the 18th century, a defendant was not permitted to give testimony on oath, presumably for fear that he would compound his guilt by committing perjury, and any statement which he did make would not, therefore, be accorded the weight of one made under oath. Hearsay evidence was permitted. In most other courts, both civilian and military, a guilty verdict requires near unanimity on the part of the jury, a role played in this court by the panel of judges. But unlike most other courts, both civilian and military, in this court a two-thirds majority was sufficient. The test of guilt was whether the charge had been proved beyond all reasonable doubt. This gave rise to the possibility that if a defendant were found guilty by two-thirds of the panel, 
but the remaining third considered him not guilty, he would be found guilty, and the concerns of one-third of his judges did not constitute reasonable doubt. Whilst it may be thought that accepting a majority verdict is a useful measure to counter the possibility that in a jury there can be one or, or, or perhaps two jurors who perversely fail to see the accused's guilt, an acceptance that one-third of the jury may be misguided is perhaps exaggerated. It suggests a very strong desire to secure a conviction. The accused were charged that A. They had entered into a conspiracy to commit war crimes, and B. That they had committed individual acts which were war crimes. Most of the prosecution's case was presented as sworn written statements, called affidavits, of which nearly 100 were presented to the court, and these implicated each and every one of the defendants with crimes that were described in exhaustive detail. The circumstances in which the affidavits had been obtained was later to be the subject of intense investigation. The prosecution claimed that prior to the battle, Piper had been given orders that no prisoners were to be taken and that he himself had transmitted these orders to his men. Everett produced German officers who swore that this was not the case. It was one man's word against another's. But even if he had given these orders, it would have been a very reasonable thing to do, and could have been standard practice. The Kampfgruppe was an armoured group whose key advantage was speed, and the taking of prisoners would have slowed its progress. Such groups, German as well as British and American, often left the task of rounding up the prisoners to the infantry, who were following. Everett interviewed a few of the 73 men charged with Piper, but because they had been kept isolated, he did so only a short time before the start of proceedings. He was shocked to learn that they all told a story that while being held in captivity at a town called Schwäbisch Hall, they had been subjected to a mock trial, been sentenced to death, and then had been forced by beatings to sign confessions. They claimed that as a result of these beatings, one of their number, an 18-year-old soldier by the name of Arvid Freimuth, had committed suicide. He had written 16 pages of a confession and then been locked up for the night. His unsigned confession was presented to the court and accepted as evidence. These confessions, none of which would have been admissible if the facts claimed had been true, formed an important part of the prosecution's case. It's highly likely that some of the prisoners had been ill-treated while in custody if not actually tortured. Allegations of such treatment were made, but there was little proof. A dentist, Dr. Knorr, who used to attend the prison twice a week, recorded that the prisoners were generally unwilling to talk, but he noticed on occasions in some of his patients a number of newly missing teeth and injuries around the head, which he believed were consistent with the beating. The interrogating officers were also heard to speak in terms of admiration for the Gestapo's ability to obtain confessions and convictions, but this, although perhaps indicative, is far from proof of wrongdoing. A later inquiry found that mock trials had indeed taken place, and this suggests that Piper's allegations were credible. 
it is highly unlikely that the prosecuting counsel would have gone to the trouble of holding mock trials, just for the pleasure of seeing the future defendants discomforted. The reasons for such shenanigans are readily understandable. Witnesses of the massacres would have had great difficulty in identifying the individual soldiers who had fired on their victims, since all the soldiers wore identical uniforms, differentiated only by badges of rank. The people who could identify the perpetrators of the massacre were the soldiers themselves, and it was therefore they whom it was necessary to encourage to testify, and in this endeavour the prosecution saw no need to stop before resorting to subterfuge, deception, and perhaps persuasion. Despite Piper's claims that witnesses had been beaten, the inquiry found that none of the sworn evidence had been provided as a result of physical violence. This is a welcome assurance, but it is a very limited one. The testimony of a witness given immediately after a beating can easily be said to be given as a result of physical violence. But would the inquiry have said the same if the testimony had been given immediately after a threat of physical violence? The fact is that a person who makes a statement in these circumstances always does so in order to avoid future violence, whether or not he has already suffered such violence. The timing of actual violence is therefore irrelevant. Similarly, the finding did not address the question of other psychological coercion, which can be just as effective as physical coercion, and is as vitiating of the evidence thereby produced. The soldiers were arrested in the summer of 1945 and were held as prisoners of war, which was their official status at the time they were forced to sign their confessions. Everett argued that as captured soldiers they were entitled to protection under the Geneva Convention, and that they had manifestly been denied it. It therefore followed that the court could not accept evidence which was provided as a result of the failure to give that protection. Dolby, the presiding judge, did not accept this submission. He ruled that the defendants had never been prisoners of war from the moment of their arrest they were suspected war criminals, not prisoners of war, and therefore were not entitled to the protections of the Convention. The fact that their evidence had been obtained under duress did not, in his view, present a problem. Accusations were made that groups of the defendants had killed a large number of civilians in various places near Malmedy. The number of dead were far from specific, thereby indicating a considerable lack of clarity within the prosecution. Indeed, so great was the lack of clarity that one accusation, that some of those charged had shot 45 prisoners at a village called Laglaise, was highly dubious. Everett presented witnesses who had passed the spot only hours after the alleged massacre, and they denied seeing any bodies, or indeed any sign that a massacre had taken place. So much for the exhaustive detail promised by the prosecution. An American officer, Lieutenant Colonel Hal McCann, who had been taken prisoner by Piper, gave evidence that both he and his men had been well treated, with American wounded being cared for equally with German. The evidence was welcome to Piper, but the prosecution attempted to undermine it by pointing out that the colonel had been captured late in the action, when the advantage was clearly shifting to the Allies, and that this might have influenced Piper's actions. This is a valid legal tactic of countering a fact with a possibility.
The court retired, and after deliberating for two hours and twenty minutes, a period which may well have included the serving of coffee, the panel found all 73 defendants guilty. The length of time spent considering these verdicts worked out at a little under two minutes per defendant. Verdicts were given in only 73 cases, because late in the day one defendant, Marcel Boltz, had been withdrawn from the trial on the grounds that his citizenship had been discovered to be French. He was turned over to the French authorities, but they, tellingly, decided that there was insufficient evidence against him to justify a trial. Over the next few days, the court handed out the sentences. Forty-three of the seventy-three defendants, including Piper, were sentenced to death. Understandably and predictably, there was widespread and grave disquiet. There was no right of appeal against either the findings or the sentences, but these had nevertheless to be reviewed by the Judge Advocate General's Corps before they could be put for confirmation to General Clay, military governor of the American Zone of Occupation. Colonel James Harbuff of the Judge Advocate General's Corps concluded that there had been a substantial miscarriage of justice, and as a result of his recommendation, General Clay reduced 31 of the 43 death sentences to life imprisonment and overturned the guilty verdict in a further 13 cases. The reputation of this particular military tribunal for fairness, competence and impartiality was now in tatters. But events did not end there. Everett had left the army but continued to act as advocate for the defendants. He managed to bring the matter to the attention of the Secretary of the Army, Kenneth C. Royal, who was so perturbed by what he heard that he stayed all pending executions in Europe and instituted a commission of inquiry under a Texas Supreme Court judge, Gordon Simpson, to report on not only the twelve outstanding death sentences in the Piper trial, but also another 127 death sentences awarded in other war crimes trials. The Simpson Commission arrived in Europe and spent six weeks on its task. The stakes were high. Serious allegations had been made about an American military tribunal, and, if upheld, trust in both the Piper trial and indeed every other trial conducted by the United States in Europe would be undermined. Public opinion in Germany and the United States was already becoming sceptical of the American ability to hold just trials of war criminals. German approval of the Nuremberg trials stood at 78% in 1945, but had more than halved to 38% in 1950. Two German Catholic bishops, the Bishop of Cologne, Joseph Frings, and the Auxiliary Bishop of Munich, Johannes Neuhäusler, were particularly vocal in their condemnation of the Piper trial. Both had been fierce opponents of the Nazi regime, and Neuhäusler had spent over three years as an inmate in the Dachau concentration camp. These were men who, when they saw what they considered to be an injustice, could not stand idly by, and they had the credentials to prove it. The Simpson inquiry concluded that mock trials had indeed taken place, but it formed no view as to the veracity, or otherwise, of the accusation that the defendants had been tortured, and in the circumstances it recommended that all the death sentence be commuted to life imprisonment. 
Shortly after the Simpson Committee reported, an investigation was held by a subcommittee of the Armed Services Committee. After sitting for seven months, the subcommittee found a number of shortcomings and made some recommendations with respect to them, but in general it upheld the court's findings. Its most severe and relevant criticism was that the mock trials had been a grave mistake. The committee's findings contain many instances of conflicting evidence, which had been presented to it and between which it had to choose. It may be that the cause of this lies largely in the fact that all the accused were tried together in one large group. That group comprised officers and other ranks. Their ranks varied from private to general. There were those who gave orders and those who followed them. In this environment, the creation of factions and, and rival interests would be natural and this may have given rise to a temptation for some of the defendants to misrepresent events when a possible personal advantage could be identified. When one's life is at stake, perjury appears but a trivial offence. By October 1949, the army's personnel in Europe had changed, and the army, no less than the public, was becoming tired of war stories. The disadvantages of pursuing the matter were seen as outweighing the option of allowing it gradually to disappear from the public's view. Over the next few years, there was growing disquiet about the verdicts and sentences in other trials, and no American general was willing to be seen as the one to have ordered possibly unjustified executions. It seemed better to move on. Accordingly, the sentences of all those convicted for the Malmedy massacre were reduced to time served. Piper was released in 1954. In summary, it can reasonably be said that this was a trial which, from the viewpoint of the conquering powers, went disastrously wrong. Accusations of attempting to pervert the course of justice had been raised against the investigating authorities, and these had led to the commutation of all death sentences. Whether or not those accusations were justified, the authorities, by their action, acted as though they were. The decisions of the court and of General Clay were seen to be capricious, Trust in good governance by the Americans, and by implication also their allies, had been shown to be misplaced. In short, the trial failed in all the areas where success was essential. It is entirely possible, and indeed was hinted at by the defence, that individual breaches of the laws of war had occurred. But could the more prosaic truth not be that at Malmedy one German soldier seeing a captured American trying to escape, opens fire. Other prisoners take cover, but now appear also to be trying to escape, and then there is panicked and perhaps uncontrolled fire from the Germans. Was justice done? You must form your own view. Thank you. <laughs>